Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we are so excited to welcome Rachel Kokenauer. Rachel, welcome to our show. Thank you. Um, Rachel has an amazing background. She started her career as a clinically trained um, pharmacist and uh, enjoying educating patients and physicians. And from there on, she held the faculty appointments at San Luis College of Pharmacy and the Medical University of South Carolina. Um, she started her career at the Sanofi as a big pharma uh, and um, as a MSL, started as an MSL and uh, spending most of her career working in small, rare disease focused on biotech companies. Throughout her experiences, Rachel has had opportunity to build medical affairs, uh, global teams, uh, globally uh, with capabilities and transform and lead medical affairs organizations ranging from uh, small sizes and building all the way up to 50, 60 uh, people in her organizations. Uh, today, Rachel is the global head and vice president of uh, medical affairs at Trevier Therapeutics, uh, where she started uh, the position there in June of 2021. And uh, she currently is responsible for all of the uh, activities and the strategy within the medical affair organization and the functions within within the organization with education, scientific communications, uh, evidence generations, medical information, and all the other capabilities that a medical affairs organization needs. Uh, and congratulating also Rachel because of the most recent uh, approval that they had on their drug for the SPARI, which is the uh, uh, first in his class for IGA uh, nephropathy that was just recently approved uh, by FDA. Rachel, I'm sure I've, I've missed a lot of your uh, your background here and there, uh, but uh, welcome to our show. We are really happy to have you here, excited to, for you to be here. And before we get a bit started, uh, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about Trevier Therapeutics and also your, uh, and also your career journey. Uh, that would be great. Thank you, Ramin. And that was actually quite a gracious uh, introduction of my background. Um, yes, I am at Trevere Therapeutics, and we like to say at Trevere that we are in rare for life. Trevere is focused in rare disease. We are a um, biotech company, just under 500 individuals. Uh, we focus in two main therapeutic areas in the metabolic space. And also, as you mentioned, we most recently had an approval in our nephrology therapeutic area that we're really excited for what we're going to be able to do for patients that are living with the rare kidney disease. And our indica first indication is in IgA nephropathy, as you mentioned. Uh, when you look back at your career, I'm going to talk about launch in a second because that's really exciting. And I know you're also very passionate about launching products and bringing it to the, to the market. Uh, was there an inflection point uh, or maybe one or two in your career when you look back in the past 20 years uh, that, that you think uh, sits you up in the right path? When I reflect back on my career, I think the first thing that was a major inflection point is I was open to joining the industry. 
I started off in academia. I loved pharmacy academia. I loved working in a family medicine residency training program. Um, never thought I would end up in the industry, but as life has it, and I've learned to say never say never, uh, I my husband's job moved us to a place where there was not a college of pharmacy. And so I was looking for an opportunity that would I, I would find as rewarding. I had never really considered the you know pharmaceutical industry, but learned about this role called uh, you know medical science liaison. And I thought, how cool to be able to, to get paid to just go and talk and educate healthcare professionals. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to it than that than that simple explanation I gave, but that was a huge turning point for me. Um, there are probably two other things that happened once I was in the industry that were major turning points for my career. I loved my roles in MSL, but I learned very quickly in the industry that it shifts and changes very quickly. And I was only in the industry for about a year and a half or two in Santa Fe, Santa Labo, merged with Aventus Pharmaceuticals. And at that juncture, I learned that there were lots of opportunities to learn more about the business, more about the, the actual company. And I moved out of medical affairs. And at the time, I didn't realize how critical that was for my own career journey. But I learned about market access. And I learned a lot about corporate affairs and doing work in healthcare policy and advocacy. It was a great, you know, four or five year stint in my career at Santa Fe, uh, learning a little bit more, I would say, about the business side. Um, and then the second major inflection point, which I was in the industry, is when I made the leap of faith to join a very small startup biotech in rare disease. I was employee number 23 at this company. Um, I was the first medical affairs hire. And, um, you know, there was no, no SOPs in place when I joined, there was no one else there to, uh, to speak about the challenges I was facing. So I learned very quickly. I also made a lot of mistakes, I would say in that first job, but you know, it's maybe it sounds cliche, but you learn the most from your mistakes. So once I got my first, you know, I guess, taste of these smaller biotechs, um, that are focused in rare disease, I knew I couldn't go back for me to big pharma. And from there, I have um, been fortunate to have other opportunities. Rachel, one of the things that I really appreciate your, about your background and I, I love your perspective on is how cross-functional you've, whether it's been intentional or unintentional, you've essentially kind of built your career. You did some work in market access, you did some work in government affairs, you did a lot of work in medical affairs, and you're also building on um, your pharmacy training. So you've kind of had all of these different pieces that you've pulled together. And what I've found in my experience is that some of the best leaders do have a really great cross-functional mindset and know how to speak to their colleagues and other functions and bring them along and translate what they're working on to what's meaningful for what you need to get done and vice versa. So we'd love to hear your perspective on some of those cross-functional experiences and how they've changed your perspective now as a, a medical affairs specific leader and kind of how those pieces come together. I agree with you, um, Kim. I, I do think it's important to have those experiences um, cross-functionally. And I, I often tell uh, 
other colleagues that are considering their career trajectory. And everyone always thinks you need to go to the next level, get that next promotion. And I often encourage people to look laterally, you know, because sometimes to, you know, go up in an organization, you need to move lateral to to have those shared experiences with people that you want to be able to partner with. And while an example I'll give, I was still technically with the medical affairs. It was a, a, a second small startup company I joined called Mateon Therapeutics. I was the first in um, one of two medical affairs hires that we ever got to at that organization. But there, they didn't need as much work from a traditional medical affairs person. You know we weren't doing a lot of medical education. Um, we were doing a lot of scientific communications. We did need to publish data, but they needed support in their clinical department. I learned so much in clinical from, from the clinical operations and the clinical development team at that organization. And I think that has also served me really well in medical affairs. You know, we always say that you would love to start your medical affairs department for a pipeline agent around the time that the phase three is starting. And now I understand even more why that's so critical. You know, being there as they're developing protocols, having that opportunity as a medical affairs colleague that looks through our lens as to how is this going to be interpreted by the clinicians that want to use it? Is there an opportunity to add another secondary endpoint that would help clarify and give the clinicians confidence to use our product is, is really critical. And I don't know that I would have had that depth of understanding had I not had that particular cross-functional experience and rolled my sleeves up with them. And um, there I got to lead their uh, study uh, steering committee. So got to know the investigators really well. So uh, yeah, I do think that it's critical and it's helped me to be a stronger leader to understand and have the conversations um, with clinical departments and explain how medical affairs can bring the value and why it's important to work together, particularly as you get really close to, uh, you know, your NDA filing and, and the approval, there's a, you know, a handoff and a partnership there that they can need to have. That's great. No, I, I also totally agree. I think being able to see the lens, the lens from the other perspective and the other function, it's, it's really, really important. It's not so much about learning exactly how they do things because they're obviously expert at doing it, but understanding their perspective and how they think, right? And to your point, Kim, bringing the value to them and what's important to them and, and finding that, that balance is, is critical. How do you use that? Uh, how have you utilized that cross-functional leadership? And I've seen you in, 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 uh, at Avexis that we work together. How do you use that in order to build a strong launch readiness for medical affairs, especially during the pre-launch that is all on medical affairs and medical affairs is, is really driving all of the activities, all of the thinking. Uh, obviously, everything is aligned with the overall brand strategy and enterprise strategy, but medical affairs are the one that are in the ground driving it. How do you, how do you use what you just mentioned about the stakeholder management and bringing that to making sure that you have a strong launch readiness strategy? I think that gets to having that cross-functional understanding helps you to better understand um, how and why you need to be valued 
by your strategic partners. And if you can understand what's important to them, then you can also uh, better speak their language is what I've found. You know, I've, I've learned, I've not always been a patient person. <laughs> People that know me well would say, but you know, I've, I've learned that um, you have to, to be patient in these pre-launch phases working cross-functionally and, and be very strategic in your approach and how you are working with those partners. And, you know, they may not always speak our language of medical affairs, and it may take more than one engagement cross-functionally for them to fully see the value of why we may need to do a uh, symposia at a Congress that maybe we hadn't planned to do it. They may believe that the MSLs can, you know, do all the education that's needed. So sometimes it, you know, when you explain that you can reach, you know, thousands of individuals versus hundreds, you know, that is, that's critical to them. That sometimes helps them to speak their, you know, speak their language versus, you know, maybe the medical affairs lingo. On that same note, Rachel, I I think that's invaluable for so many organizations and especially medical affairs leaders thinking about how to work with their colleagues, planning for launch and other activities. If we could maybe continue to stay on that thread and, and just talk about articulating the value of medical affairs as a function, vying for the resources you need to build the function from scratch, which I know you've done multiple times, or you know when you're at the the inflection point of growth for the business where you know every dollar, especially in biotech, is a trade-off. Is it another clinical resource? Is it a medical affairs resource? Is it another MSL or is it another salesperson? How do we think about all of these trade-offs? And we'd love to hear maybe <laughs> a version of your elevator pitch on why do we need to invest in medical affairs when we're first building it? And how do you continue that conversation and when you're growing and scaling it? Because I know a lot of organizations, I'm personally in conversations all the time saying, help me understand why we need to do this. What is so critical about it? What differentiates it? Why should we be investing in it now? I want to start by saying is we as medical affairs professionals should never underestimate the value of our work to a successful launch. And I think if we think of that, think of ourselves that way, and we think of ourselves as a critical partner in launch, then that helps you get in the right mindset. Because I think mindset is a really big aspect of this. You know, I've, and I've probably done this myself and learned from it. We come in maybe a little, a little meek and a little apologetic, and we, you know, present ourselves more as like we're trying to serve other departments versus being their partners. And I actually have a little sticky note on my computer to remind myself that I'm a partner in this. I'm not serving someone else. So I think when we have that mindset, then we can go in and we can, you know, I've never been a part of a rare disease launch where there is complete understanding in the external, you know, uh, stakeholder space of the, you know, unmet need or surrounding the pathophysiology or the pathogenesis of the disease that we are trying to bring a new treatment option. And understanding that and the fact that medical affairs is the one department that should be and would be, you know, is 
the leading edge out there to prepare the market, to understand, you know, the the disease, the way that we see it, and also to understand the treatment landscape. While we can't obviously be proactive talking about our compound, you know, there may be certain aspects that we are doing to educate. So I think that's that's one thing that we need to do is make sure that the organization understands the value of what we can do early on from just the um, foundational education. The second thing that I would say that I've, uh, you know, tried to, you know, build my case for resources and, you know, whether it be financial or human resources is it is so critical. Some of the key foundational documents that come out of medical affairs, while it has to be done cross-functionally, if, you know, we are the, the only ones that lead in the development of a scientific communication platform. And when that is done well, and when that's done cross-functionally, you will have consistent messaging across an organization. Now, I've been parts of it, you know, parts of organizations where that hasn't happened <laughs> as well as we would have liked. And, you know, that's probably due to resourcing and timing of when the talent was brought in. So I try to learn from my past experiences and, you know, uh, you know, opportunities for improvement and be able to articulate those examples. So those are a couple that I think of that I try to use in this early phase. There's others. Uh, are you proactive, Rachel, in communicating how do you, so that's, that's great. It seems like, I mean, you've given us two or three kind of a, like a secret sauce or like a superhero that you, uh, power that you need to really focus on. Are you proactively thinking about and strategizing on how you're delivering these messages and these values to different audience in your stakeholder? Because obviously uh, the CEO will, different things will resonate with, with him or her versus a CMO or maybe your counterpart in clinical development that they are running these studies versus obviously the business side and the commercial side. They all also have a slightly different, we all have the same focus and, and goal in mind, but we're all kind of coming in from a slightly different perspective. Do you proactively strategize on this and how you deliver these messages uh, to them and making sure that you're truly partnering with them or is this naturally comes out um, from both sides? I wish it was natural, uh, Ramin, that uh, that I could just show up and uh, be perfect in my delivery or whatever. And and I wish I, I wish I could also say that I've always take the time to prepare. Um, while it sounds simple, when you're in the throes of uh, preparing for a launch and maybe a little bit closer to the time being brought in than you ideally would have, um, there's a lot of balls in the air. I think most, you know, I think you can probably agree and you've been there, Ramin. But while it may sound simple, my best meetings that I have and where I think I do find the most success is where I go into the meeting and I've thought about what is it I want to achieve and what is success going to look like for me? Um, I can't say that I do this 100% of the time, but I definitely when I'm going to be meeting with senior leaders and, you know, managing up per se, I, I try to, to make that time. So it's really critical for me, you know, speaking of is having time in my calendar to think. 
not being in back to back to back meetings, but, you know, knowing what I'm willing to uh, be okay with and, you know, leave with versus also knowing um, what I really need to fight for are really important. And you, you do have to, to plan for that. So you have to prepare um, for these types of meetings. And you also have to think through what's important to the individuals you're meeting with. And I found that it's usually not the what or how that will get me where I need to go with a, a senior leader. It's the why. They want to understand the why behind it. And I think oftentimes when I'm not successful, that's the piece that was missing because I'm like, of course they know why, but this is what I need. And I think medical affairs in particular tends to be one of those functions that struggles a little bit with the why to your earlier point, because it kind of falls into this. Are we serving other functions? Do we have our own independent strategic value to the organization? the why it's so critical kind of falls out in many circumstances. I personally lean in a lot, and I, I don't know if you would agree with this at all, but I lean in a lot to the idea that if I were bringing my parent to a physician, I would like to assume that that physician knows the best possible treatment on the market available for whatever they have to diagnose my family with tomorrow and they know how to get it. They know how to make sure that my family is okay. They have the entire path in front of them. And the only way they can do that is if medical affairs is showing up and doing their job. It's the only function that exists solely to make sure that that baseline assumption as a patient or as a caregiver holds true. And so when I think about the idea of the role of medical affairs in a launch or in building an organization, it, and it might be bold to say this, it's a little bit of shame on us as an industry, if we don't make that true, right? We're all patients in some capacity, we're all caregivers in some capacity, and we want that to be true, and we hold the cards to make that a reality, but we don't always think about that in terms of the why. And so it's easy to say, I'm not going to invest in this, or I'm not going to give the dollars there, but yeah, at a personal level, you fundamentally know that the why is there, and you, you want that to hold true. You're speaking my language here, Kim, and <laughs> I I always simply say, you know, I think for medical affairs, if this is going to help, if, you know, the resource or the activity or the whatever it is, is going to help to increase access for patients for the right treatments for them, then it's the right thing to do. And by access, I'm not just thinking from the payer perspective, although that is, is really critical. Access the first level of access is through uh, the work, you know, through the inter interaction that happens at their healthcare pro provider's office. And they have to have confidence in the, the data surrounding our product. So if we haven't done a good job disseminating our data, if we haven't done a good job educating, then they're not going to be able to make the appropriate risk benefit decision for the patient. And like you, Kim, and I know Ramin, you're the exact same way, you know, I, I feel very passionately about that too, is it is on medical affairs. While we do have colleagues in the field that are, are also working towards this common shared goal of you know, improving the health for, for patients and such, I, I take it very seriously that medical affairs has to be able and prepared to, to contribute to this and to share in that responsibility. 
And that's so critical, I think, when, especially when you're bringing a brand new product to the market, right? Because I think the point that you brought up is so important is, is also not, even though we are focusing on internally, right, what's really critical and we have to have a better understanding what's the value of the individuals and the executive team that we are interacting with. Uh, the other part is the external folks, the patients, uh, right, the physicians, the KOLs, and what's really important to them sometimes is not quite aligned what we think is important or should be important and, and how do you find that right balance, right? That you bring the data in a way that is also meaningful to the clinician, not necessarily what we think it is from, a, um, from the company perspective. Um, and that's on its own also a, a separate challenge because medical is right in the intersection of bringing the outside and the inside together and kind of making sure that we are thinking about both both aspects of that. And I know you started your career as, as, as an MSL, so you're very focused on, uh, on the patients and on the physicians, KOL, making sure that we are delivering the right, the right information and education to them. How do, you, how do you, is that a challenge? Do you find that as a challenge in general in medical affairs? And how do you overcome that, bringing that balance from the external to the internal team, especially during launch, which there are a lot of unknowns, right? And we don't really have a real world kind of experience with the product yet. Uh, how, do you, how do you bring the two internal and external kind of closer to each other? You mean the, the things that we're learning externally and how to integrate that into our work? Inter into the thinking and the strategy of the organization, even though the, the company may not quite be there yet or quite agree with it. Uh, how do you manage that, that part of your, your job? I'll first say that, you know, my experience with launches is I've learned we also have to temper our enthusiasm on something, making sure we don't act on a one-off. You know, meaning I don't want to have this huge pivot and refocus when it's while it may sound very, you know, something that we need to act upon immediately. If we only are hearing it once, we need to make sure that it, it's it's more than one individual because you're always going to have an outlier. But I think the best way to be able to do that, Ramin, is actually setting the stage correctly ahead of time. If you have established your value with it, with your internal partners, by showing them that you understand the standards of care that are out there, you know, that you understand and know the product attributes, you know, the literature, you understand customer insights, and that you can provide a, a really rigorous, uh, I guess, analysis of the competitive landscape. You got to do that to set the stage. So when you do bring things in, you already have that credibility. It's, it's a little bit harder, and I found myself in this place in my career where you haven't established that pre-launch with your cross-functional partners. So you have to work twice as hard when you are hearing something that is real out in the field, and you need to establish the right, you know, um, processes and, and, you know, meetings to be able to share this in a coherent way. And, you know, because early in launches, you, um, you're often hearing a lot of different things and you need to figure out a way to categorize them, to segment the types of things that, that you're hearing um, to be able to you know, package it in a way that people can receive it. Along those lines, Rachel, one thing that you, um, you expressed to Ramin and I kind of prior to this conversation, so 
giving a little bit of our, our hand here. Um, but relative to your ability to be really successful with cross-functional stakeholders, as well as external stakeholders and the marketplace, you mentioned that your network was really critical in all of these scenarios. And to me, that's a little bit of a secret sauce of it's not it's not so easy to be really collaborative cross-functionally. And it's not so easy just to go out there and build external relationships that really deeply give you these insights or you know, how to jump from career to career and make those lateral moves that you were referencing to get those opportunities because they're not always in front of you. But um, you reference this and we've heard it from, from other guests as well, how critical your network is in enabling your success and in various elements along the way. So we'd love to hear a little bit more about your um, your experience cultivating your network and, and more about how you're really leveraging that to continue to build your career and, and build your success you know, in your current role and prior roles and, and intentionally future roles. I guess I learned early on, you know, I, I have thought a lot about this since we had our, our initial discussion is, and I think what I learned early on is I couldn't be successful alone. And, you know, I know there's a lot of sayings out there, you know, there's no I in team and, but I, I think maybe that's part of my training too as a PharmD. I started thinking about that as a pharmacist, you know, a clinically a clinical pharmacist that goes on rounds in a hospital. Um, you often find yourself in that role. You're part of a team, and you may not always be the decision maker in that team, but you have to develop your partnerships and relationships and, and network within the institution to make sure things, you know, um, have you know things go the right way for a patient. And I had a mentor very early in my career and she told me, if you always put the patient at the center of what you do, then you're never going to make a bad decision. And so I've taken that a step forward is I always think about the patient and I think, I don't know all, I just don't have all the answers, you know? And so, you know, the people in my network that have been a part of it is, you know, I observe people and I look to see who truly has a, um, an understanding of their specific area of expertise. And I was, you know, and I respect that and I will go to them and ask for, you know, advice or whatever. And I try to keep up with them over the years. I'm not always the best about it, but what I've tried to do with my network is when I think about someone, I will just reach out, maybe send a little text or something. And if I have time and I'm going to be in a city that I know someone I worked with previously, I try to make time to go have dinner with them or lunch with them or, or follow up with them. And it served me really well as I've um, been fortunate and moved into leadership roles, because I think part of this, my network is then I use, then I can go and leverage it for people on my team. And I've done that already several times in my current organization for people on my team, because I'm not so egocentric to think that I have all the answers all the time. I mean, I wish I did. I'm just not that smart, I guess. Um, but I'm smart enough to to bring in other people and to listen to them. And um, so, yeah, you know, I, I know where my strengths are and I know where there's some areas that I, I don't have the depth of experience and expertise. I was just going to say, I'm always telling my kids, they're both in the college, it's like, you got to build your network. You got to build your network. Uh, so I'll make sure that they listen to, to this part of that, this podcast. Uh, how do you, uh, is, is when you're building a network, Rachel, are you only thinking, I want these folks to be on my professional network 
because what's there also for me? Or are you also thinking, is it a two-way street? Is it a give and take? How do you think about that? Because I think sometimes we have a tendency of thinking that we build a network because these are the people that can help me to accelerate my career. And, and that's not really what it's about, right? How do you uh, balance that with a give and take there? in your network? You know, I do try to take more time, particularly when people reach out to me directly. And it's not always everyone in my network or not always necessarily people that can help me advance in my career. Um, they may bring a different type of uh, contribution to my own development. You know, I've learned there's just a richness in and talking to multiple people. And even when I have students that reach out to me from, you know, different colleges of pharmacy, I, I, um, I respond to them and I talk to all of them because I, I learn from them. Gosh, they're so smart in smart ways. And I would have never dreamed that, well, those are people I need in my network per se. But I think by giving your time, you know, particularly earlier in my career, I spent a you know, I did a lot more with some of the professional associations and I was on committees and volunteered. And I think that's where my networking started. I don't know that it was intentional, but I met a lot of really interesting and smart individuals. Um, and I, I didn't go to do that deliberately to say, I need this person to help me with X, Y, and Z. But I've learned a lot through these and I've, and I've made some friends along the way too. You know, it's not always just about uh, the professional relationship, but you, you know, can widen your friend network, you know, as a part of this. I know we are coming toward the end of our, our podcast and we have so much more questions uh, to ask you. Uh, I have a question with regards to the trend of medical affairs, the future. If you have to kind of think 10 years ahead uh, in early 2030s, which is coming pretty fast, <laughs> <laughs> faster than we want, perhaps. Uh, where do you think we will, where, where do you see the future of medical affairs? I mean, you've, you've seen the last 20 years and what, what the history has been and how we've gotten where we are at, which has been an incredible ride uh, and is accelerating on a weekly, monthly basis. Uh, where do you see the next 10 years? Where do you see medical in overall or even launch a specific uh, medical trends? While there's been the McKinsey reports and all these things that have talked about the future of medical affairs and becoming that strategic partner, I don't know that we're all the way there yet. You know, I, I think that and I think those reports are like future for 2025. So maybe it'll take till 2030. But I, I do think we'll continue to elevate in our importance and launches and as being a, the true partner and being held accountable. So I think there's going to be more accountability put on medical affairs. I, I think that some of the, the trends, you know, I think COVID really accelerated our need to better understand the digital space. And I think some of the, you know, larger, you know, pharma companies have spent a lot of money trying to understand the digital channels and how we truly engage with people. I think that's something that will have a gain a better understanding and understand medical affairs role to go from just a multi-channel to an omni-channel type of educational approach. I think that um, digital KOLs, we talk a lot about them, but I'm not sure exactly what that we've mastered that and how to engage with them and how to harness the power of these, you know, those types of uh, key KOLs and how they're educating others. So I think that will be a bigger focus for us. And, and another stakeholder that I think medical affairs and depends on your organization 
uh, kind of dabbles in is the, the patient and caregiver community. I think that working with our advocacy teams in the organizations and finding out, you know, a compliant way and an appropriate way that we can work, particularly in rare disease, with these patients and caregivers is going to um, increase in importance for medical affairs. We've got to figure that out. Patients are becoming more empowered and they need to have the information. And I think it's incumbent upon us in the same way that we feel that that accountability with KOLs and HCPs, we should also feel that same thing for the patient and caregiver community and really, you know, crack that nut and figure out how we can can do that. What about the talent trend? The medical affairs 10, 10 years from now, I can totally see that in my 20 years, 20 plus years in medical affairs, the talent has, has, has shifted to drastically. There are new talents that we are after because in order to be successful in our functions, which is ever ever evolving, right? Uh, we need to kind of evolve with what the needs is also from, from our colleagues, from the business side, and also from the clinical side. How do you see the talent growing in medical efforts 10 years? What, what kind of a talent will be looking for when you're interviewing somebody like for, for positions in, in a group? Is it enough just to have the scientific background or are we looking for more or what, what are some of the, those key aspects? I think you are you hit the nail on the head a little bit about you know our, the expectations of talent is not just to be really sound clinically and scientifically. We need people that are excellent in communicating. Um, we we've said that for a while, but I think there's going to be a bigger focus on that communication, the business acumen, truly understanding that side of it. Healthcare is a business. And to be able to understand how to help our patients that we serve and to provide what, you know, our, our um, HCPs and payer audiences need, we need to understand that side of it. So I think there's that aspect. And I also think we're going to, there's going to be an expectation for a more technical skills as it relates to the digital space um, and those types of engagements. That is not a skill set that many people within medical affairs possess right now, but to be able to manage and work with the, uh, you know, digital KOLs and to get to that, you know, omni-channel type of educational approach, we're going to need people with, with that skill set too. So um, it's hard, you know, talent is a limited resources as we all know, and we're all vying for that pull. It, it may become even more difficult to find uh, individuals that possess all of those areas of, of expertise. Very exciting. Uh, yeah. No, thank you very much, Rachel, for your time. This has been a, a wonderful episode. We really appreciate you taking your time and, and joining us today. And uh, we wish you the best. Thank you so much, Rachel. I enjoyed it. Appreciate it, you guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.